Welcome to the AJP podcast, a podcast for pharmacists by pharmacists, where we discuss current events, relevant topics and emerging issues. I'm your host, Carly McMoore, and together with the AJP, I'm bringing you the opinions and expertise of different pharmacists to discuss their views and insights on topics relevant to pharmacists. Please like and rate each episode and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. So I thought I'd start by asking you to introduce yourself. Hi, Carly. My name is Dr. Sarah Deneen Griffin. I'm the Chief Investigator and Project Lead for the New South Wales Government Pharmacy Trials, uh, based at the University of Newcastle and leading a very large team to deliver um, the co-design, implementation and evaluation of pharmacists' expanded scope in New South Wales. Thank you. Um, Can I ask you, when a pharmacist hears the word scope of practice trial, what changes can they expect this will mean for them in their day-to-day practice? I think that's a very um, good question, uh, but also a very big question. And I think it is different for everybody. Uh, So I really wanted to highlight before we start this question, I guess, the international trends around scope of practice or pharmacist prescribing. And so what we're seeing, Carleen, internationally is that there is a trend for pharmacists to extend their scope of practice, as we know, um, to include prescribing. Now, um, the countries that are obviously leading in this area include the United Kingdom, Canada, uh, as well as New Zealand. And so when a pharmacist uh, hears the word scope of practice trial, I think it's important to also acknowledge the word trial in this uh, scenario. And it typically means like there is an evaluation or experiment underway to assess the potential changes uh, to our professional responsibilities as pharmacists. So the specific changes that pharmacists can expect um, during and after a trial uh, can vary widely, I suppose, depending on the goals and outcomes of the specific trial. Um, But also thinking more broadly, I guess, around the regulations and the guidelines in that specific jurisdiction. So obviously we're working in New South Wales and that uh, slightly differs to what's currently happening up in Queensland, and I suspect probably Victoria and the other states, which I'll touch on uh, later on in the podcast. Um, But I guess there are some common changes that pharmacists might anticipate as part of this um, scope of practice work. So I think the first thing is really the expanded clinical role of pharmacists. So one of the primary goals, I suppose, of the scope of practice trials is really for pharmacists to expand their clinical capacity or their clinical role. And so in the instance of New South Wales, um, this has included allowing pharmacists really to provide a broader range of healthcare services, um, such as through uh, their consultation uh, and prescribing of medications for certain clinical conditions. So this includes urinary tract infections, um, the resupply or extended supply of oral contraceptives for women. um, And we have a number of other conditions coming again, which I'll talk to later on. But I think it's also important in other states that this looks a little bit different uh, for other pharmacists, um, particularly in in the instance that we, this scope of practice might mean administering vaccinations, conducting health screenings, managing chronic diseases and so forth. So um, we need to consider obviously the jurisdictional context to which we're working. I think the second thing that I wanted to highlight was really around the collaborative care aspect. And so, Um, Now that we're moving to an expanded scope of of practice, uh, we really need to be encouraged or required to work more closely with other health professionals. So this includes obviously physicians and nurse practitioners and and so on in a team-based approach 
um, to patient care. Uh, notwithstanding that these trials or these scope of practice work is, is in community pharmacy, particularly in New South Wales. So I think this really needs to be considered in ongoing discussions, I guess, on how we can work to optimise that. And again, I'll cover that a bit later on. So um, this can really involve, I guess, regular communication or coordination to optimise patient outcomes. One of the other things that I wanted to mention was the educational um, requirements as well as the competencies for pharmacists. So um, to take on these new clinical responsibilities, I suppose pharmacists might need to undergo that additional training and education. So these changes are likely to be competency-based, um, meaning that pharmacists uh, can demonstrate their competence through training, certification or assessments before being able to um, prescribe or provide uh, these expanded scope services. And lastly, the regulatory changes, which are incredibly important, um, particularly as we're looking at the jurisdictional um, approaches to the scope of practice uh, trials or the scope of practice work in each state and territory. Um, and it, we largely need to consider the legal and regulatory framework to which um, is governing our practice as pharmacists. So this might include um, revisions to state or national pharmacy practice uh, legislation or acts, as well as the changes in uh, reimbursement policy for pharmacy services. So I think um, there's many more things that I could touch on here, but uh, those are probably the primary things in New South Wales that we're working towards uh, to ensure that, um, I guess, pharmacists are well equipped to roll out these expanded services in, in New South Wales. Thank you. Can, can you talk to us about the difference between regulatory changes that would allow us to work within our competence as opposed to scope of practice changes that allow us to do roles that have not been traditionally been done by pharmacists? Yeah, again, I think that's another excellent question. And I think it's um, one that requires probably a very complex or multifaceted answer. So I've tried to draw on a few different aspects, which I'll draw out for you, um, particularly around the education uh, which I'd like to talk on, on more, but also the infrastructure requirements, particularly operating in a community pharmacy um, environment. So when pharmacists work within their competence, um, they're building, I guess, on their existing uh, expertise and experience in medication management. Um, when they're taking on new roles, they're often entering into healthcare domains that really extend beyond those traditional pharmacy responsibilities. So they require that shift um, in our fundamental education and training. And this is something that we need to really consider as we move forward, particularly with the expanded scope work um, and what that's going to look like in future. So I think both those types of changes really do have a profound impact on where we're going in the future, but also on the healthcare system more broadly and obviously um, patient care um, aspects. Uh, but they do represent different approaches, of course, and um, they do leverage off pharmacists' uh, skills and expertise, which some which we currently have, but some which we potentially need to, to roll out future services. So, again, I just wanted to highlight some of the international examples of where pharmacists have moved um, and some of the particular educational requirements that they need to undertake in order to do um, these things in practice. So, in England, as an example, the General Pharmaceutical Council, um, which is the body uh, responsible, I suppose, for the, the registration of pharmacists, have said that by the end of 2026, um, all students graduating from an accredited degree at a university must be able to practice 
as an independent prescriber. And I find that incredibly exciting. And obviously it's taken a long time to get to that point. Um, but I guess the English pharmacy schools are really discussing uh, how at the moment this might be achieved um, to ensure all, all pharmacists are trained to that extent by, by that time um, in, in 2026. Now, looking at Canada, uh, we know that the regulatory changes that have um, not been applied at a university level, but largely, I guess, at the provincial level through changes in legislation. So in practice, the universities in association with the colleges of pharmacy have developed courses or various content in um, uh, intensity, which lead to an accreditation as a prescriber. Um, so there's another level of complexity there, uh, given that they are operating at a provincial level. Um, and they also have multiple models of, of what is considered a pharmacist prescriber. Um, so for example, in the British Columbia, they have a certified pharmacist prescriber um, as part of a collaborative model or, or framework. So we really need to consider that moving forward. Again, in New South Wales, uh, um, sorry, in New Zealand, a postgraduate qualification is required to become a pharmacist prescriber, similarly to the UK. Um, and now the two currently accredited programs there are a postgraduate certificate in clinical pharmacy uh, in prescribing, which is offered at the University of Auckland, uh, as well as the postgraduate certificate in pharmacy prescribing offered by the University of Targo. So I guess they're considering the international framework. We now need to consider, obviously, what's happening in, in, in Australia, but also, obviously, from my perspective, in New South Wales. So um, there are several activities occurring as we know in, in Australia, which will have implications for the development of educational requirements, accreditation, content, as well as the delivery of education for pharmacist prescribers, both now and in future. And so, um, uh, Carleen, the, the Pharmacy Board of Australia has requested the Australian Pharmacy Council to undertake a project to develop accreditation standards for pharmacist prescribing. And it's my understanding that uh, the accreditations at the accreditation standards at the moment are subject to ongoing consultation, which have not yet culminated in any decision at this stage. So um, the states and territories are really um, in a unique position here because uh, we're looking to what might be coming in future with regards to the educational competencies and standards which pharmacists need. Uh, to be able to deliver this uh, in a safe and effective manner, but at the same time, uh, we're waiting uh, waiting patiently um, to be able to do that for our national bodies and um, our national standards to be released. I also just wanted to touch on the um, infrastructure. So with regards to infrastructure, these changes for expanding scope um, typically involve, I guess, modifications to not only the physical aspects of the pharmacy, um, but also the technological aspects um, of how we operate in a community pharmacy environment. So, of course, um, these changes really are necessary uh, to support pharmacists in their expanded roles to ensure um, both quality and safety, of course, um, but also things like privacy. And uh, this is particularly important in New South Wales as the first two conditions or um, our scope services that we're rolling out particularly relate to women's health. Uh, which, of course, are urinary tract infections and, and extended supply of oral contraception. So we really need to consider the privacy uh, aspects um, and, and, and ensure that our patients are feeling comfortable um, to consult with a pharmacist in a, in a way that's um, 
I guess, meeting their needs, but also obviously we're upholding uh, the quality and safety aspect, aspects as we move forward uh, with uh, service delivery. So in New South Wales, we really have adopted throughout the entirety of our consultation process, we've gone through a significant co-design process where um, we've adopted the philosophies of patient safety, um, the prevention of fragmentation of primary health care, as well as collaboration with, with general practice. Um, now, particularly when um, commenting on the legislative requirements, that's um, become increasingly important for our, our ongoing discussion. And so some of the key aspects that we've really highlighted in the New South Wales Health Authority is um, firstly around the designated private consultation spaces that are required to deliver um, scope of practice services. The secondary thing is really related to the prevention of fragmentation of primary health care. And um, again, this is addressed, addressed in our New South Wales Health Authority, is really the need to share patient consultation data and um, uh, what that means to be sharing information between uh, pharmacy and, and say another health provider such as a general practitioner or alternatively another healthcare setting. So at this stage, I guess a major limitation for us in practice is that there really is no formal communication system between pharmacy and, and general practice at this stage. And so as part of the work that we're doing, really advising pharmacists to communicate um, because it is a legislative requirement uh, with uh, a patient's regular GP if they have one. Now, obviously that will be utilising their normal method of communication and that might, might be a multitude of ways. So it might be through a, a secure way electronically. It might be um, handing in information to the patient to take to their GP at their next visit. So I think that we really need to think about this moving forward and, and what's really critical is developing potentially a national or state-based approach where we can actually share this information in a secure way, um, but also have ongoing discussions to progress this, particularly at a national uh, level as we move forward with our scope of practice work and other um, states and territories come on board. I think the last thing just I wanted to highlight was around the clinical management protocol that we've developed. And again, that's embedded in our legislation. Um, so the clinical management protocols in New South Wales have been subject to this co-design process that I mentioned. Um, and uh, not only uh, have we had input from multiple stakeholders into those clinical management protocols, we've reached agreement on referral points and so forth, but um, we've had these externally facilitated to cover some of these really complex issues that we're tackling, um, particularly how we can actually share this information between health providers and utilise pharmacy as um, as a really critical point and a part of the accessibility of, of the healthcare system. We are already, um, but we do need to be better integrated into the rest of the primary healthcare team. And um, largely that needs to be facilitated um, by technology and also obviously through the education and training to which I've already mentioned. So I think that those changes, um, plus many others that we need to consider, obviously we really need to think about how we can create the healthcare environment uh, to which best enables a pharmacist to operate at their full scope, um, but also provides really high quality patient-centred care um, that we can contribute most effectively to, to the health system overall. Thank you. Can I find out what does the New South Wales trial cover? Uh, yeah, I, again, I think in order to consider the New South Wales work that we're doing, 
Again, we need to consider the national context to which the changes in community pharmacy are occurring and I guess their collective impact across the country. So as we know, um, Carleen, uh, in Australia, the state and federal governments have followed this international trend of adding um, to their policies the need for pharmacists prescribing. In Queensland, as we know, the state government there have legislated for the first time pharmacists prescribing for um, antibiotics for urinary tract infections, and that's become business as usual. Uh, and it's currently funding a pilot study in northern Queensland on, on pharmacist prescribing, which um, will allow community pharmacists in North Queensland to prescribe medications for common conditions, as we know, nausea, vomiting, reflux, mild skin conditions, um, but also provide health and wellbeing services like uh, hormonal contraception, uh, weight management, supportive quit smoking and so on. So in New South Wales at the moment, uh, we're funding a study or the New South Wales government is funding a study to evaluate um, community pharmacists prescribing for uncomplicated UTIs, the resupply of, of certain contraceptives. Um, and we also have four types of skin conditions um, currently within our contractual remit. So that includes atopic dermatitis, mild plaque psoriasis, impetigo, as well as herpes zoster. Um, as you'd be aware, because you're, I believe you're from in Victoria, um, the Victorian government has announced the $19 million allocation for pharmacist prescribing, which is um, currently in the process of being prepared and uh, moving forward. And uh, the Western Australian state government has also now legislated uh, pharmacists prescribing for uncomplicated UTIs. And it really is highly probable that other states and territories will follow uh, this trend. So I think... Um, Obviously, from a, a state and jurisdictional approach, we need to consider, but also at a federal level, uh, we need to consider what's happening. And so um, only recently, the Minister of Health uh, has made various statements, particularly in support of community pharmacists um, adopting an expanded scope of practice in primary healthcare service delivery. And so these discussions, I think, really have been complicated now as the government has made significant changes to the remuneration dispensing arrangements, um, as well as the funding, which the profession um, does not support uh, as the new policy and, and may have detrimental in, uh, impact really on the remuneration base for community pharmacy moving forward. Um, so I, I guess overall, the minister has reacted by bringing forward negotiations of the community pharmacy agreement or the 8th CPA that underpins our professional practice um, and remuneration moving forward. And this is really critical um, as we move forward with expanded scope around what that actually means for our profession and how we can leverage from the 8th CPA to really further progress the work that we're doing in our state and territories um, uh, and ensuring, I guess, they're not only in isolation, but we're really working towards a nationally consistent approach moving forward. Um, there are a number of pilots and trials around the country and the New South Wales work is a clinical trial. So what is the difference? Uh, again, that's a really good question. I think from a research perspective, a clinical trial is a research study um, designed to evaluate the safety and effectiveness of a specific intervention. So what we mean by that in New South Wales, community pharmacists, um, the intervention that we will, we will be implementing in, in community pharmacies across the state is um, essentially prescribing for specific clinical conditions, which I've previously mentioned, urinary tract infections um, and a number of skin conditions for specific patient cohorts. So 
the clinical trial really aims to generate, I guess, the evidence base that can be used to inform future health policy decisions and further improve, if required, the service overall that we provide through community pharmacies. So the clinical trials really usually are larger and more rigorously designed uh, from a research perspective than pilot programs um, involving a larger number of participants as well as often um, across different geographical regions. So in New South Wales, we obviously have uh, a broad range of geographical areas. So we've tried to include a lot of the regional and rural areas as well um, as part of our, our clinical trial and, and ensuring pharmacists in those areas are supported um, to deliver these services um, to their communities. So uh, with regards to the research in New South Wales, we really have well-defined primary and secondary outcomes, uh, which align with our research objectives. And that really is to measure um, or assess the safety and effectiveness of the intervention, which is the pharmacist service delivery being studied. And, and given this is a research trial, uh, we are subject to more strict regulatory oversight, um, obviously to ensure patient safety, data integrity, as well as ethical conduct. So at all times during the trial so far, We've had a, a governance structure in place um, to ensure that it has included all the relevant stakeholders, um, including not only from pharmacy, but also medical and consumer representatives to ensure that we really do have a collaborative approach uh, to patient care. Um, and also that, that aspect of, I've mentioned around quality and safety um, and uh, avoiding fragmentation of primary health care has been um, upheld throughout the entirety of the trial. So um, just as an example, I think um, really important to highlight here that given that we are under that, this research framework, one of the things that we're doing here is closely monitoring any patient adverse events through what we're calling a data safety monitoring board. Um, and so that board will really advise us, um, independently advise us on any issues that might arise with relation to patient safety and quality throughout the trial. So the data and the outcomes that are generated as part of um, the clinical, the use of the clinical management protocols that I've previously mentioned will be independently evaluated. Uh, again, another important aspect to our trial um, by an independent institution, uh, and um, it will be aligned with uh, the registration of the trial on a public register, which is on the ANZCTR uh, clinical trials registry. So, and I think just to highlight that this will really be an important way um, to evaluate patient safety in a robust way, um, but also ensure that we're producing really solid evidence uh, for the pharmacy profession moving forward. Thank you. Um, when working on scope of practice trials, how do you balance the areas these pharmacists already have expertise in that other stakeholders believe that pharmacists do not already have training and expertise in? For example, minor skin conditions and the request for training on psoriasis and atopic skin conditions or an intervention under a prescribing arrangement and stakeholders asking for training, which covers areas that already are in the undergraduate pharmacy degree. Thanks for this question, Carleen, and another big question uh, to tackle. Um, we probably need longer than <laughs> 30 or 40 minutes to cover just this question alone. I think um, balancing the areas where pharmacists already have expertise with stakeholder concerns about those additional training and crucial aspects of, of conducting scope of practice trials is really critical. Um, and particularly in New South Wales, that's something that we've been working towards uh, from, from the outset. 
So the balance for maintaining not only obviously patient safety, but um, ensuring that we maximise the scope of practice of pharmacists along, along the way. Um, and in saying that also, the obviously the confidence of other healthcare professionals, ensuring that they also have the confidence in us, in our abilities and our clinical confidence moving forward. So um, our philosophy really in New South Wales has always been to involve key stakeholders throughout the process. Um, and as, as I've previously mentioned, including pharmacists and a number of other stakeholders, um, in both the planning uh, and implementation of these trials uh, moving forward. So we've been really open and transparent, uh, particularly with communication uh, among our stakeholders um, to address, I guess, the concerns and misconceptions about pharmacist capabilities. Um, and again, that's really important because we know that pharmacists already have really uh, clear competence in specific clinical areas. Uh, and it's obviously how we're working towards this expanded scope that we ensure that we have the right competencies and, and pharmacists have the right education in order to meet um, those uh, clinical capabilities moving forward. Again, something that I've previously talked about, but I think it's really important to keep highlighting um, the educational aspects to what we're doing and how that will have implications for us moving forward. So I think it's really imperative that we also ensure that we propose that the proposed um, scope of practice changes really are based on evidence and best practice. So uh, we really need to highlight existing research and data demonstrating that pharmacists' successful involvement in, in certain areas of care um, have not only been demonstrated internationally, but also now being demonstrated at a national level. And um, as previously mentioned, the educational requirements are obviously of utmost importance. So these must not only be considered now, um, but also um, uh, I think we need to consider from an existing workforce perspective, what pharmacists that are already registered and out in the workforce need uh, and want, but also what our undergraduate programs need now and, and moving into the future. So balancing that existing expertise with that additional training is really, I think, a dynamic process that I think we're all working towards, but it really does require collaboration, communication, as well as that commitment that I've mentioned a few times now on patient safety and that quality of care aspect moving forward. Um, so there's a balance there that we need to ensure that we're getting right, and we need to strike that balance so that we can maximise not only pharmacists' contribution to healthcare, um, but also obviously minimising stakeholders' concerns and working towards that collaborative approach uh, to, to healthcare delivery. Great. What areas do you see or do you want to see more work done as far as scope of work practice work is concerned? Uh, so I guess the scope of practice for pharmacists, as we know, is really an evolving field. Uh, and there are several areas where more work and research obviously would be beneficial, uh, I, I suppose, to further enhance both their roles and responsibilities of pharmacists moving forward, particularly at a national level. What we've seen as part of the international models is the uptake of pharmacists to autonom autonomously prescribe. Um, and as well, thinking about, uh, I guess, minor ailment conditions and so forth, how we diagnose and treat um, those specific conditions. So as an example, uh, we've identified in previous research that there's 47 different conditions 
under minor ailment and prescribing services in other countries that pharmacists are able to um, manage uh, appropriately under uh, specific frameworks. I think it's also important to consider the conditions we already have competency in. Uh, and this is where I mentioned the balance earlier. So we already work um, in, in our day-to-day -day bread and butter uh, with, with uh, patients presenting with self-limiting or minor ailment conditions. And I think we really need to look at ways we can maximise our impact uh, here with relation to patient access. Um, and, and this might be achieved through increased availability of restricted substances by pharmacists. So allowing pharmacists the option of uh, providing prescription-only medicines or what we consider prescription-only medicines to treat um, these self-limiting or minor ailment conditions moving forward. So that's one aspect. Um, but at the same time, obviously, we also need to consider the increasing demands on, on primary health care and our other primary health care professionals, um, but also of our hospitals and where pharmacists, I suppose, could really best contribute to alleviating the health system burden. So notwithstanding, obviously, the need to address health disparities um, and improving healthcare access, particularly in regional and rural areas, which has been an emphasis on our, in our New South Wales work, um, but also the needs of, of vulnerable groups, particularly our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, um, and how we can best support them through community pharmacy, um, but uh, not only with our existing services, but also obviously as we expand our scope of practice. So what infrastructure changes are required to support this work? For instance, how does a pharmacist contribute clinical notes after a consultation to My Health Record? Again, I think this is a really big question, but um, to support the expanded roles and responsibilities of pharmacists in healthcare, contributing or being able to contribute to clinical notes, such as through a, an electronic health record system, such as My Health Record, um, or similar information exchange systems, I think there are real fundamental infrastructure changes that are necessary, not only infrastructure changes, but also the policy change um, that's required. So. Uh, from a pharmacy and workflow perspective, particularly in a community pharmacy environment, we really must consider the practice change um, that's required here. But furthermore, that ensuring that any infrastructure changes such as those through technology are pragmatic, um, are practical and also feasible. Um, so, you know, we can develop these U-Boot systems, but that doesn't mean that I, A, they're going to be implemented uh, in, in an appropriate way. And B, it doesn't mean that they are pragmatic and feasible to use for pharmacists and embed in their current workflow. So we really need to consider the practical aspects of any, any systems that we develop and, and the implications on our current practice. Um, from a technological perspective alone, I think there's obviously many factors that we need to consider. So, uh, for example, Carleen, pharmacists need read and write access to integrated systems that allow them to document clinical notes, view patient histories and coordinate care with other healthcare providers. And so importantly for any system that's going to be used by pharmacists, uh, we really need to consider that seamless exchange of data between um, not only other health providers, but as a health system as a, as a whole. And so whether my health record is the system to do that, I'm, I'm not sure, but we really need to consider um, how we're actually going to share those clinical notes and patient information obviously from that practical and pragmatic standpoint as well, making sure that pharmacists are upholding that quality and safety, but also from our practical perspective, what that looks like for pharmacy practice at a day-to-day -day level. 
I think we also need to consider the clinical documentation tools that enable pharmacists to, to do these things in practice. So that might be recording of clinical notes, assessments, potential interventions, as well as any recommendations that they've made. Uh, and lastly, to highlight from a data security perspective that any technology that's really introduced into practice, we need to make sure that we're meeting the highest standards of uh, privacy and confidentiality to make sure that we're upholding, um, from an ethical perspective, patients' health data. And how do other states leverage the work being done to have parity amongst the states? Achieving uh, parity in the scope of practice for pharmacists across different states in, in a country, I think, often requires strong collaboration, um, communication, as well as alignment of policies and regulations. And I'm going to touch on a few of those points. I think from our perspective, particularly in New South Wales, what we've seen evolving and now other states and territories are coming on board is that each state and territory is doing something slightly different. Uh, whether that's a good or bad thing, you know, that that's something that needs to be determined. But I think from my perspective, what I really want to ensure is that standardised and consistent approach uh, to scope of practice uh, for pharmacists, not only across states and territories, but at a national level. Um, and I think that's how we're going to best optimise patient care, but also ensure health system efficiency moving forward. So I think uh, some important considerations that we need to consider as part of this national approach is obviously the regulatory framework and the jurisdictional variation. So um, ensuring that consistent approach to authorities or any uh, legislation that's developed to facilitate pharmacists prescribing at a national level. So we really need to take care though here is that we don't want to stifle innovation or restrict innovation at a state-based level in any way, um, but we do need to consider how we have that alignment between um, jurisdictional uh, approach, uh, particularly for states that are aligning with each other. For example, New South Wales and Queensland and those cross-border uh, nuances or slight differences in service delivery or the way that a patient would normally access treatment, uh, what that actually means um, and how we can mitigate that because it may potentially create uh, problems down the track. I think also um, the clinical competence in education, which I keep going on about, but it's really fundamental to pharmacists prescribing and uh, our expanded scope of practice. And so developing and maintaining pharmacist skills or clinical skills and competencies for safe and effective prescribing. So we need to consider not only obviously the significant changes to the university curriculum, um, but as well from a professional organisation perspective, how they can better support um, the delivery of education and the ongoing professional development of our pharmacists in the workforce. Um, and also as part of that, I think we need to consider um, our approach as well to the way that we are uh, delivering these services. So, for example, the need to move from a, that protocol-driven approach um, to more of a holistic, clinical decision-driven approach to care, um, which is more about the patient uh, themselves, that patient-centred care approach, um, how we optimise patient safety during that process. So, a very clear example in, in New South Wales, um, particularly as we're considering these women's health conditions, is um, how can we best um, manage a patient or have those holistic consultations, particularly related to women's health overall? So what, what I mean by that is 
uh, you know, we're dealing with a urinary tract infection, but it's a really prime opportunity to ask some really key questions uh, for for women or for consumers around, you know, their sexual history or their cervical screening or, you know, whatever it might be um, to ensure that we're also intervening and potentially referring on patients that may actually need follow-up um, by a GP or another health professional, um, in which case, you know, we are, um, we are uh, I guess, optimising patient health outcomes in that in that consultation or in that process. So not just focused on that clinical condition, but thinking about um, the patient overall and, and how we can better contribute there. And I think we also need to consider lastly around the sustainability of all of this and particularly uh, who's going to fund uh, the changes in education. And obviously if we're moving to a university uh, or potentially a university coursework or something, uh, something similar, we need to think uh, about that ongoing funding and, and who's going to be funding those changes uh, for, uh, for pharmacists. Lastly, just again to highlight the collaboration aspects with other health professionals, and this is really fundamental to our, uh, I guess, integration, our true integration into the rest of the primary healthcare team. So um, we've mentioned previously just around those electronic systems or their technology systems that might need to be in place to ensure that we're connecting community pharmacy to the rest of the entire healthcare system, um, primarily general practice in this instance. But um, as we move forward with the expanded scope, obviously we need to be not only receiving um, information and sharing information, but that, that needs to be reciprocal. That arrangement needs to be reciprocal. So pharmacists need to be well informed as well, uh, obviously to make the best quality decisions for their patients um, with relation to the care that we provide. So uh, that local collaboration um, and the systems-based approach that we that we implement, whatever that looks like, we really need to consider how pharmacists and other health professionals are interacting moving forward. Um, and so lastly, I guess just the national uh, approach, just to summarise, um, from an advocacy level, um, the national level advocacy that's occurring, as well as um, potentially state-based collaboration, we think we need to... Uh, I guess our advocacy bodies, our peak organisations, really need to be working to advocate for consistent uh, scope of practice across the board, consistent standards at both a national and state level. So aligning our policy priorities among jurisdictions is going to be really important, not only uh, for a national approach, but ensure that we're, we're promoting that standardised approach to care, um, which obviously will be of benefit to us all uh, moving forward. Brilliant. And how can the pilot transform into a sustainable model of care? Other than what I've already previously mentioned, I think for any program to be sustainable, um, there are a number of financial and professional factors that we need to consider. Um, I think probably the one that I haven't touched on yet is really the financial aspects uh, and the business model of community pharmacy. So here we we really need to consider the financial remuneration and incentives uh, for community pharmacy or and community pharmacists to ensure the viability of, of pharmacists prescribing practices. Obviously, with um, a number of announcements that have occurred recently, which have large implications for the financial viability of community pharmacy, we really need to be thinking about how um, expanded scope services will be funded uh, but also how, how we can ensure that financial viability of the sector moving forward. 
I think determining the viable business models that support those sustainability in, in pharmacist prescribing services, um, obviously we need to consider that from um, the business income perspective, but that, that might be how we um, move from that product to service funding um, based, a, based outlook. Um, how will really pharmacists evolve uh, now, I suppose, and in future to ensure that this is really profitable for their business? Um, but again, we really need to find a balance between obviously optimising patient care and also that sustainability from a financial perspective, a business perspective. Um, so these really are critical factors that we need to consider moving forward. Brilliant. So I'd ask if there is anything else you wanted to share that I haven't asked you about. That I think I've covered everything. Thanks, Carly. I've thoroughly asked you a lot of <laughs> questions. I think um, since there's lots of little bits of talk about the trials, it's really good to bring it all together. Um, and I think a little bit of hope with a lot of changes that have gone on um, with the 60 day dispensing, this will provide some hope and some context for pharmacists, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, I think so. I think it's always important to think about it in the national context. And obviously, a lot of pharmacists, particularly owners, are so disgruntled and upset and obviously really down about these changes that have occurred. So um, thinking about you know, how, yeah, like you said, providing hope, I suppose, but how um, the profession is going to take hold of those changes and, and move forward. Uh, and really optimise its role in healthcare, but also making sure that it's financially viable is going to be really critical. Um, so I think a lot of these trials and these state-based approaches are incredibly important, um, but now we need to start thinking about, uh, hey, well, we've got all these state things happening, where do we want to get? And that is really a national approach to expanded scope. So, yeah. Thank you so much. This has You're been welcome. amazing. And what I would say is, um, as things progress, um, like I can check in with you and see if there's like another opportunity to share as things progress so that people can kind of come along the journey and kind of see mm. what's going on. I think that would be amazing if that's okay with for you. Sure. For sure. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the AJP podcast. If you have any thoughts, comments, or suggestions about this episode, please visit the AJP website forum at ajp.com.au and join the conversation. If you have any suggestions for future topics or would like to participate in the podcast, please follow us on Twitter at AJP Podcast and send us a message.